0: Mm -hmm. Please turn in your Bibles to 2nd Corinthians, chapter 10. I am really glad you're here this morning. Thanks for coming to church today. We're going to finish up this chapter. We'll start in verse 7 and read through verse 17. Paul's writing to a church that he's not really getting along with. He's got some really good things to say to them. We trust that these words inspired by the Holy Spirit are for us as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 7. Paul says, do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ." For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you by letters. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when we are absent, such will also we will also be indeed when we are present. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. For we are not overextending ourselves, as though our authority did not extend to you. For it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ not boasting of things beyond measure that is in other men's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. Verse 17, But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. Lord Jesus, we, we trust you. Uh, we trust that you are going to speak to your church through this word. We trust that just as the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write these, these words, uh, you, Holy Spirit, are also present with your church here today to give us the, the words of eternal life. We trust you to teach us. We pray that your glory would be our, our goal, um, that your word would guide us there, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so you'll remember, hopefully, well, seven days ago when we taught on this last, uh, you'll remember that in the first part of this chapter, Paul talked about spiritual warfare, and he did so a little bit differently uh, than than we're used to. He, in In his conversation here about spiritual warfare, rather than speaking in terms of fighting demons or something like that, he said that the spiritual weapons he had for his spiritual fight were good for defeating arguments. Rather than fighting against the devil, he's fighting against the Corinthians over their own bad ideas. The bad ideas in this case were actually ideas about Paul and really about the apostles as a whole and about the missionaries that came and, and taught them when they first believed. There were people who had the wrong ideas about Paul and his team saying that he was hypocritical or weak or just carnal, just worried about the flesh or any number of things, Um and all of these things boiled down to, you, Paul, don't get to tell me what to do. That was kind of the bottom line. They looked for excuses, whether it was that they didn't think he was a real apostle, or they thought, well, he's you know writing these letters, but he doesn't mean it when he's here in person, he behaves differently. They were looking for excuses to just not have to listen to Paul. One of the problems with this, uh, their line of thinking, their defenses kind of against Paul, was those coming against the apostle Paul were judging things, judging him, according to appearances rather than with spiritual discernment. The first verse we read today, do you look at things according to the outward appearance? And and if we're asked that, we all kind of shrug our shoulders and go, well, sometimes, <laughs> I mean, I guess. Like, I have eyes in front of my head, so I guess I'm doing that. Anyway, Paul's say, asking them this question as kind of a rhetorical, a hypothetical, saying you, you probably shouldn't. If you're judging only based on what you see, you're going to come to the wrong conclusions, when things of the spirit are being discussed. Anyone with a little bit of familiarity with the Old Testament and its heroes would know that looking only at the outward appearance is a mistake. It's how you get Saul instead of David, right? We know that while men look at the outward appearance, it's the Lord who looks at the heart. If if we only looked at the appearance, David, seventh in line among his brothers, would not have had a chance. And as far outward, as far as outward appearances go... We suspect that Paul wasn't much to look at, and he says himself he wasn't much to listen to. Seems like most of Paul's skills were in the areas of writing and pain tolerance. Those two things he was just really, really good at. In verse 10, he says that those in the church say of Paul, his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Don't like to look at him, don't like to listen to him. Last week, I shared that extra biblical description of Paul, which may or may not be accurate, take it with a grain of salt, but it described him as a bow-legged, squinting guy with a unibrow. And if that's, if they were going to judge Paul only according to the outward appearance, they would easily come to the conclusion that he is weak. And what's more is that some people were taking this line of thinking way, way farther and suggesting that such a person could not really be one of, you know, God's right-hand men. He couldn't really belong to Christ, not in the office that he's fulfilling right now. Jesus would take better care of his kids, don't you think? Or at least he'd choose some more attractive apostles to put on, like, the, the front page. Now, Paul's argument here, it's its sneaky, uh, and it's its not entirely kind. It's kind of funny. It's essentially, you guys need to look in the mirror. That's his argument. He says, if anyone is convinced of himself that he is Christ's, let him even consider this in himself, just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ's. Now back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26, Paul wrote this. It's kind of funny. It's a little bit like a backhanded compliment. He says, for consider your calling, brothers, same church he's writing to both times, right? Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is Paul saying God loves, he loves foolish things. And so he loves you. Get it? He's chosen the weak things, the foolish things, the ignoble. And so naturally, you're first on his list. Okay, this is is like first century... Uh, first century church speak for bless your heart. That's what Paul is saying to all these people and he he's saying that the church is so full of people If if we were only looking according to outward appearances, they would be disqualified. There's plenty of people who would not reach the bar if there were entrance exams and so now there's some in the church in Corinth that have set up standards who are saying, Paul doesn't measure up. I don't know if we should listen to him and Paul is essentially saying, none of us measure up, you guys. If you look at yourselves and the way you were accepted into Christ, you won't have a whole lot of trouble seeing that a guy like me can be in Christ too. Revisit your testimony. Question, did the Lord require you to clean yourself up before coming to him for the forgiveness of sins? No. Did he make you pass the theology exam or win a prize in a beauty pageant or something? No. That's not how he does things, and we know this and we believe this, But if we're honest, we'll admit that very often we slip into that place where we're a whole lot like Samuel trying to get David's brothers to be king because they're tall and good-looking. And so Paul challenges people judging him based only on appearances, saying you need to extend the same grace to other people that Christ has so generously shown you. If you think that there is a chance that you're saved, well, who can he not save then? Because you know the darkness of your heart more than anyone else. Let's keep going. In verse 8, it says, For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for the edification and not your destruction, I shall not be ashamed. Paul has had to talk about his authority before. We've been reading about that in Second Corinthians a lot. He's had to pull rank. Uh, he says a few things. If He has to remind them again what an apostle is, where that authority comes from, how he came to be commissioned by Jesus himself, pretty good credentials if you ask me, and how his work has provided evidence of his authority and how the other churches he's planted and the other Christians he's led to the Lord, all of these things taken together show his ministry to be legitimate. And he says, yeah, if I have to talk about that, I, again, if I have to talk about that a little more to you, I'm not going to be ashamed. He says this authority, which was granted by the Lord, by by the way, not by popular vote or something like that, not the court of public opinion. He says, this authority was given for edification, to build up, not destruction. It's just as Romans talks about, about other authorities. Romans 13, 4 says, for he is God's servant for your good. Paul says, I have authority. I'm not going to brag about it, but it's for your benefit that you know what my job is. Paul is in a position of authority, but not in order to destroy. He's there in order to build up, just as Jesus says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Matthew 25, 20, verse 25. Paul knows the model. He knows the gospel. He's doing his best to live by this model, as all who are in any position of authority would do well to imitate. So he if he has to lay down the law and correct some bad behavior, he's not going to be shy about it because he knows that really what he's doing is he's serving them. He's doing it for their good. Verse 9, he says, I'm I'm doing it this way, lest I seem to terrify you by letters. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in the word by letters when we are absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present. In other words, watch out, here I come. Uh, We talked about this a little bit last week, how Paul, in in person, has not been very intimidating. He wasn't scary. Uh, In fact, they could easily say his bodily presence is weak. Uh, Not even his preaching was very authoritative. It it didn't come across like he was the guy in charge to some people, because they had, you know, preconceived notions of what an orator, what a speaker should sound like, and Paul just didn't measure up, apparently. Um, But then he writes these letters uh, even letters that are pretty strongly worded at some points. He mentions the sorrowful letter a few chapters back, and it's a letter that put the Corinthians in their place and left them in tears. So he's he's really good at letters. Um, some of them didn't cry as hard as the others. Some of them still seem to think that Paul is just a little dog that barks really loudly, and as long as he's held safely in the little doggy purse, but then you put him on the ground in the dog park And he's shown to be all talk. Paul is answering, saying, I'm not talking like this to terrify you by letters. I just need you to know that when I come to visit, I'm going to be the strong person that I have been, that you've come to know in writing. As bold as I've sounded in these letters, that's the level of boldness that I'm going to bring when I'm going to correct those who are trying to undo the work of the gospel in your church. I'll remind you again of what we talked about last week. Paul is modeling Christ's mercy and justice in his behavior here. The things that Paul is accused of, of you don't mean it. You're, you write big letters, but then you show up and you're weak and you're not very impressive. Jesus has been accused of the same things you know. Peter addresses this in 2 Peter three nine. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. People have questioned the Lord for literally thousands of years now saying he's not really coming back he's god doesn't judge sin oh oh he does and he will and say yeah the the book i read i read the fire and brimstone stuff and i read some things in the bible about like being hard on sin but i don't see it happening i don't think it's going to happen the lord is not slack concerning his promises as some count slackness he's patient just as paul was being patient with the corinthians he's not willing that any should perish so he's giving each one more time It's his will that all would come to repentance, so he's giving more time. Do you see the similarities here with Paul? People are saying, Paul, he's full of hot air. He doesn't mean all that stuff about excommunication and all that. He's not going to actually do it. People say that about Jesus. He's not coming back. It's taking him too long. There are also people who don't take the second coming or any of that judgment stuff seriously because they have this image of Jesus meek and mild holding the lamb and humming, Jesus loves me. But it's not, I love me, Jesus loves me. What would he be singing? Anyway, It's not hard to make sense of the fact that a good father cares for the little children and defends his family against enemies. Jesus does both. He's not, you know, unstable to behave like this. He's not bipolar or schizophrenic. It's just normal, natural reality of being a protector and being just. And as we look at Paul as an imitator of Christ, we see in his words the shadow of Christ, that that what we are in the world by letter when we are absent, such we will be indeed when we are present. When you read in Scripture about Jesus having compassion on the humble and near to the brokenhearted, that's really and truly what he's going to be like when you meet him. So humble yourselves because he's near to the humble. When you read of Jesus with a sword coming out of his mouth with blood-soaked garments conquering and defeating, he's really actually going to be like that too. He is a man of his word, and as he is in writing, in the words of Scripture, that is the Jesus that we are going to meet. Now, Paul goes on, and he says, I'm not even going to compare myself with those people that really like comparing themselves to other people. He says, For we we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. Okay, a lot of words here. Paul has said, it's not going to bother me to talk about my authority, which is straight from God. It's for you. I'm building you up. I love you. I want you to be a healthy church. I don't mind telling you that the work I'm doing is for your benefit. What I'm not going to do is describe myself and how I measure up to man-made standards or how well I match the flavor of the week. Paul says we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with people who are used to just boasting about their own accomplishments. Remember, Corinth has their favorite teachers who are actually teaching a false gospel. Paul is not saying, look at them and then look at me, then look at them, then look at me. He says, don't look at them at all. I'm not going to. I'm not even going to talk about them. I'm not going to compare myself with them. He's not going to compare himself with these people. He's not going to play their game. When Paul talks about his ministry, he does not say, my sermons are better than theirs. My numbers are more impressive. I have these certifications and qualifications. Actually, he does almost the exact opposite. In Philippians... Uh, Philippians chapter 2, he lists all of the qualifications that he has and says, I count all of that as absolute garbage. I will throw it out of the way so fast if any of it threatens to get in the way of me knowing Jesus. That's what matters. It's about me knowing Jesus. And I'm working and suffering and laboring and even dying so that you can also know Jesus. That's where Paul's coming from. He's not going to play the game by saying, I'm apostle numero uno, because my name is at the beginning of more books of the Bible than anybody. You know, he could have, I guess he could have said something like that, but in talking like he he does here, he shows so much wisdom, so much maturity. The personal application really pours out of these verses. There are people who get their sense of worth by how they compare to other people. And if you think that's not you, take heed those of you who stand, lest you fall. Uh, this is a threat for each one of us. There are people who get their sense of identity and who they are from how they measure up in comparison to other people. And this is something that can be, can and will be a temptation for each one of us. Now, Paul's talking about how Christian leaders do this, but so do all Christians of every kind. Paul says that people who get into this kind of you know group and look around and say, okay, I'm good, I'm good because I'm a little better than that, and I'm fine because she and I are about the same. He says, these people are not wise. This is not wisdom. This is what foolishness really looks like. This kind of thinking is a mistake. It's a trap and it's a mistake. Not only will it rob you of any sort of joy that the Lord has for you, because it's it's based on a lie, but it will prevent you from knowing Christ. Remember from last week where Paul says, the weapons of our warfare, they're not carnal, but mighty in God for tearing down strongholds and for casting down every high thing that would exalt itself against the knowledge of God, knowing God. Paul wants to go out and tear those things down. He wants to tear down all the things that would prevent true knowledge of God. Well, here's one of the things that we should be happy to wage war against. It's this kind of life by comparison. That's a a stronghold worth tearing down. Find your identity in Christ. You are his, and he is yours. Find your qualifications in Christ. Look to your own work, the race that is set before you, without getting bogged down with other people's tasks. Paul had to write this to other churches too. It's a common thing. Galatians 6, 4, he says, Let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. When Paul talks about judging other people by the wrong standards, which the Corinthians are doing, which we have a tendency to do, He says this in Romans 14, verse 4. He says, Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. And that's about judging outwardly, but the same can be applied to the selfish boasting that Paul is talking about. Comparing yourself to others really says that you're serving them or their standards rather than your own master, the one who called you. To boast, to say how great you are compared to them is foolish. To judge yourself on the performance of others is foolish. This way lies madness. These, says Paul, are not wise. Now verses 13 through 16, it's one of Paul's big, long, run-on, confusing sentences. Uh, So we'll just have to take it in pieces. The main point of this long chunk of text is that Paul is asserting his authority and ministry only within specific boundaries appointed by God. And his boasting, as he calls it, is consistent with his heart for the Corinthian church's growth and the spread of the gospel into areas beyond. Um, It may come across as proud or arrogant for those who are easily offended by Paul's confidence, but Paul is avoiding boasting in the work done by others in their respective areas of influence by planting his flag, so to speak, only in the areas that the Lord has placed him in. You have a calling. You have a sphere of influence. That's your business. And Paul is saying, this is my business, and you're my business (laughs) in correcting your mistakes and leading you in the gospel. This is well within the sphere of influence that Christ has entrusted me. Verse 13, he says, we, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you. For it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ. Uh, You can kind of read between the lines and hear the Corinthians complaint that, that Paul is answering. When he says in parentheses, as though our authority did not extend to you, we can deduce that there were people who were saying, Paul, oh yeah, I mean, he works somewhere, I don't know where, but his authority does not extend to us. But what Paul is saying is that they are well within the limits of, the sphere of his sphere of influence and that God himself appointed him, Paul, and the other apostles over the Corinthians specifically. Now, when you're stating your position, when you have been duly, the a position to which you have been duly appointed, it's not really boasting at all. It's just giving an accurate job description, you know, if you're a teacher in a classroom and you go in and they're like, are you the teacher? And you're like, I don't really want to boast about it or anything. I don't know. I mean, I just want to, you know, everyone has their own sphere of influence and I don't want to stretch. It's just, it's giving someone a business card with accurate information about what you do is not boasting beyond measure. For me to say, I'm the pastor of this this church, that's not boasting. It's just saying something that happens to be true. Now, if I go to another church and I stand up and I say, you guys have to listen to me because I'm a pastor, that would be weird. Uh, inappropriate, and not really helpful, Um, and it would be beyond my sphere of influence. There were those in Corinth who were saying, Paul's coming on strong as if he has some sort of authority over us, and Paul's saying, yeah, exactly. That's exactly why I'm coming on strong. I planted this church. I led you to the Lord. Jesus Christ appeared to me and told me, it's my job to get you to heaven if I can, so I'm going to do that. He offers to, uh, you know, the, the super obvious pieces of evidence to support uh, you know, his claim to that authority. He says, God appointed us to this sphere, which includes you, specifically, especially. Remember, his position was not granted by men, by vote, by committee. It was given to him by Jesus. And he says, for it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ. They heard the gospel from Paul. They were led to the Lord by Paul. For a year and a half, Paul taught every day, and they grew in their faith because of Paul. Of course he had authority. Of course his authority extended to this particular church. Now, verse 15, he says, not boasting of things beyond measure, that is, in other men's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. Now, he's showing the limits of his boasting within without putting limits on the Corinthians themselves, when he says, we're not boasting of things beyond measure, that's in other men's labors, he's saying, I can take credit for some of the things in Corinthians in Corinth, but not all the things. Yeah, you heard the gospel from me, but as I wrote to you in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase, all glory goes to him. And you've got other leaders, I get that. There's other people that have ministered to you in your faith. I get that. I'm not claiming that it was all me, but as you develop in your Christian walk, as you grow in this faith, I'm hopeful that our influence in you will grow even more. The influence we have as church planners will grow and develop as you and us together partner for the sake of the gospel and go to preach to those who have never heard. Paul's missionary heart bleeds through this passage. He's hoping for reconciliation with the Corinthians, right? He's hoping to correct them where they're in error with the purpose of eventually not just being friends that can sit down and have coffee or something. He wants to be ministry partners with them for their good and their benefit, but not only for their good and their benefit, for the greater cause of the gospel. He wants to go beyond them. He wants Corinth to be a kind of a a home base for Paul and other missionaries to go out and preach the gospel in other territories, other regions where no one has heard the, the gospel of Christ yet. A success story for Paul is not Corinth just getting along with him. The success story would be Corinth sending Paul and others like them out to go preach the gospel. A few chapters back, he had pleaded, Open your hearts to us, and it would be easy to assume that his final hope is that everyone would just be friends. That's part of it. But the point of church, while we enjoy the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, while we we certainly like it better when everyone gets along rather than when they don't, But that's not the point of church. The point of church is not just for everyone to get along. It's for everyone to get along so we can get a job done. So we can get the gospel preached. And even in the midst of this kind of confusing chapter, we see the real heartbeat of Paul hoping for the day, not just when no one is arguing anymore, but for the day when the apostles, the churches they planted, new believers, their pastors, all together are working together for the cause of the gospel. Seeing to it that those who have never heard the name of Jesus will come to faith in him. Um, you know, we we witness uh, church you know, division, and just division anywhere. I mean, wherever you work, there's people you don't get along with maybe. But in churches, you know, it, it grieves our hearts more if there's people that don't get along. And it's so uh, prevalent that it's easy to get stuck on that fact that if, if just everyone was friends, then that would be a healthy church, that that would be good. And that's that's a false idol. A healthy church is multiplying a healthy church is going and sending a healthy church is preaching the gospel now this makes the division within churches and and the uh, you know the fights like the ones we read in Corinth all the more important because we see that the Corinthians not getting along with Paul as tragic as that was for them personally and it's 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 sad it, it should have not happened, but we see that people's lives are on the line here because their division is preventing the gospel from going out from Corinth into these other areas. Paul's hope then is not just that they will get along with him, but that the health of the church would be restored and would be proven by the fact that this is a church sending missionaries. Uh, He's hoping that they would get along in order to get the job done. He talks about this idea of working on the fringes, pioneering missions beyond and of how his mission was not just to work where other people are working, or to finish what other people started, though that's a legitimate ministry for some, like Apollos. But it was Paul's drive and his vision to see the gospel preached further, 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 until he could be confident that the gospel had gone out throughout the entire world. And this is how he describes his ministry in Romans 15. Romans 15, verse 20, he says, And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. This is what Paul wants to do. This is his sphere, as he puts it. This is what he had done in Corinth, and he wanted to keep going to push into Europe and see Christianity spread. He wanted the Corinthians to be his ministry partners in this. Now again, it's hardly boasting, just to give your job description. Paul's a missionary, he's an apostle, he's a church planter, and his fav- but his favorite way to describe himself is bond servant. Now, you probably aren't a church planter, though you could be. Now, I'm sure you can boast in the same title of servant, no matter what your ministry is. You can glory in the Lord along with Paul in whatever ministry he has placed you in. The key here is that God is the boss. He's the one who places people where they are. He's the one who deputizes, who sends, who approves and disapproves. Judging things from outward appearances gets you nowhere in understanding others or in estimating yourself or in understanding the call of God. Verse 17 is the bottom line. He says, but he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commands. You can say you're great all day long, does make it true. This verse says, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. It's one of Paul's favorite verses, it seems. He uses it in 1 Corinthians 1 as well. Uh, It's a reference to Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, which is worth quoting in its entirety. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, nor let the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands And knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. This is, again, why Paul is willing to wage warfare against anything, any idea, any argument, any practice that would exalt itself above the knowledge of God, because knowing God is the only thing worth boasting about, according to God. It's the thing worth pursuing with your whole life. The pursuit of this knowledge also frees us from the danger that exists when we get our identity or our value from other people, from these comparisons that are so unwise. Seeking the knowledge of God, and let's go further, along with Paul, this burning desire to make him known, it frees us from the counterfeit riches of worldly wisdom, human strength, material wealth, none of which are worth boasting in. Let him who, glory, who glories glory in this, that he knows God. This is a great way to shut down the contest of who's the better Christian that Corinth had set up. They could compare resumes all day, but what really mattered in the end, do, do you know from experience, do you know the living God? Do you walk with him? And then the clear follow-up question, does he know you? For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. What does he say about you? Boast in that. Rejoice in that. He says good things about you. What does the Lord say? Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, it was marked by two questions he asked the Lord. The first thing he asks, there's a bright light. He's blinded. He falls down, right? All that. He says, who are you? It's a good question. And then his second question is, What would you have me do, Lord? The knowledge of God. Who are you? Who is God? That became the the all-consuming pursuit of Paul's life. To know Christ and the power of his resurrection. He'd throw everything else away for that knowledge. And this kind of hunger and thirst for righteousness led him to live his whole life in faithful service within the realm, the sphere of his calling. There's more than enough in these two questions to last you your whole lives and more. Who are you, God? What do you want me to do? Pursue the knowledge of God, knowing him, and then pursue obedience to him. How would he make how would you make him known? If these are your pursuits, you won't have time or inclination to concern yourself with what other people think or are doing or are called to, or with any of those lesser things. Because your identity, your sense of worth, your calling, your life's purpose, the, the reason that is before you for getting up every morning will be something so unshakable, immovable, permanent, and sweet because it's coming straight from the lips of Jesus that you're just not going to want the stale counterfeits. You're not going to want to live for things less than Christ, the upward call of Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we worship you, and we love you, and we want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want your will to be done here in our church in North Fork as it is in heaven. We pray for your spirit to breathe health into our church, and for each one here, each saint here, to have a strong sense of the calling. I pray that they would know the calling of Christ. Bless us, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please stand. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him, above ye heavens. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Uh, You are sent.